Hello and welcome to episode two of ESPN Scrum Reset. My name is Sam Bruce. I'm the associate editor of ESPN.com.au and I'm very privileged to be joined for the first time this year by our New Zealand-based columnist and New Zealand Herald writer, Liam Napier, joining us from amid the Auckland lockdown. Liam, how are things over there? Yeah, hey Sam, Chrissy, good to see you both. Um, yeah, can't complain, all things considered, lockdown uh, 5.0 or as they keep bouncing, but um, yeah, chugging away, it's uh, another few days to go and hopefully emerge out the other side come Sunday. And of course, Christy Doran is back uh, for round two as well, uh, of the 15 fame and now back at Fox Sports as well. Christy, um, how are things, mate? Sammy, great to see you catch up again and join you on this pod. Hopefully uh, everyone enjoyed the first edition, but great to see Liam across the ditch. Last time I saw him, he was playing halfback uh, in, a, in a suburban ground in New Zealand and it was raining, there was mud everywhere and, and Liam was in the thick of things with just dirt everywhere all over his face. Uh, must have been a sight to behold. Uh, anyway, let, boys, let's uh, let's get into it. Let's leave the uh, the park stories for another time. Um, Liam, uh, Super Rugby Aotearoa off to a, a flying start last weekend. Um, probably uh, expected victories for both the Crusaders and Blues, although a few people were tipping the Hurricanes to get the job done there against Leon McDonald's team. Um, any performance, sorry, or uh, individual performance that, that really caught for you, caught the eye for you in round one? Yeah, both teams, well, both uh, matches sort of straight out the gate, um, two quality matches. Um, uh, first match, Crusaders, uh, Highlanders in Dunedin under the roof, always in pristine conditions. Uh, Cedric Reese had a bit of a field day out wide and and uh, Cody Taylor was exceptional for the Hurricane, uh, for the Crusaders up front. Um, you know, uh, amazing uh Defensive performance from the Crusaders. They gave away a lot, a lot of penalties. Uh, they considered two yellow cards. Um, but for me, I guess the, the common theme, uh, which is a wee bit surprising for um, you know New Zealand teams, um, was just the sheer dominance of the Crusaders and the Blues scrums. Um, you know, I guess traditionally scrumming for penalties is maybe something you might see in, in the Northern Hemisphere and the like. But uh, the Blues have got four Blacks props this year. And uh, they were extremely dominant, and the Crusaders just swallowed the, the Highlanders up as well. So they were real uh, platforms that um, enabled the likes of Sevier Reese and Caleb Clark and, and Rico Awani to shine. So, yeah, I guess uh, that was a, a real common theme for me. Round one was the dominance of, of those two teams' packs, and I think that's why they're favoured to, to meet in, in what will be the inaugural Super Rugby Aotearoa final this year. Christy, uh, watching over from the other side uh, of the Tasman, um, as I said, probably everyone expected the Crusaders to get the job done. Um, what did you make of their performance and uh, anyone, any one player that, uh, that caught your eye across uh, round one? Well, I think there was a couple of moments in that game where you've gone, the Crusaders have been pushed back, they haven't quite been able to make the game line that they wanted, and then Richie Mawanga just manages to boot to ball and find the touchline, allow his players just to have that breather. And you think about from an Australian perspective, someone like a Will Harrison or a, a young up-and-coming Tars player who's not going to have a forward dominance pack in front of him laying that platform, and that's something that he's going to have to do really well over the coming months is to assess when to take the borderline, when to shift and when to kick. And, and I suppose that's what happens when you've got experience uh, under your belt. But 
yeah, clearly the Crusaders, it's just the juggernaut that keeps rolling on and, and the ability for them to finish off tries is something that we've seen a little bit from the Reds and the Brumbies and, and not so much from the other three super rugby sides. The Rebels hardly had a second of, of attack in that first match against the Reds up in Brisbane, but it's the same old story and were the Crusaders a bit fortunate not to lose Joe Moody early on? Perhaps a, a push to the, the face. I actually thought it was great refereeing to allow it on, but there was a lot of people that were tweeting me going, well, what's the difference? It's, it's contact to the head. Uh, it was off the ball. How's this not even a yellow card? I thought, you know, it's in the first couple of minutes of Super Rugby. Uh, no one was hurt. It wasn't really a punch. I thought, play on. Great refereeing, I thought. You know, yeah. Keith actually came out on the uh, on the breakdown uh, show this week and said, "Yeah, he should have been yellow carded, and, and if it happens again, uh, you know, the, the yellow will be flashed." So um, I was probably with in your camp, Chrissy. That um, you know, you know, early doors, just have a bit of a word and, and settle things down. But yeah, I think from now on, those sort of incidents will be we punished. It's, it's consistency, isn't it? And that's the thing that's going to be really difficult now. If that happens again, will they just point to what happened in the opening minutes with the Crusaders and then they have that tag? Is this just the Crusaders that always get away with these things? Oh, I, 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 get the, I get the fact that, yeah, you could have given a yellow uh, and, and made it a, a pre set of precedent, but, but there really was no force to it whatsoever. And we see that happen all the time around the ruck and the breakdown. So... If there had been a little bit more force to it, absolutely, it would have been carded. On the flip side of that one, Liam, uh, also on the breakdown this week, uh, All Blacks coach Ian Foster talking about discipline. We know New Zealand have had a little bit of trouble with that over the last couple of years, particularly last year in the in the Tri-Nations, getting niggled into off-the-ball incidents. How disappointed do you think he will have been with that action of Joe Moody uh, in those uh, opening minutes there in Dunedin? It was a pretty telling comment from from Foster. He said, "You know, uh, you know, stress the need for discipline." And, and like you say, after the Tri Nations, where teams, you know, uh, successfully riled the All Blacks into mistakes, and, and that was particularly evident in that the uh, maiden loss to, to the Pumas. And uh, Foster said, uh, "You know, it didn't get off to a good start." So I think he was definitely referencing Moody there, uh, and and just the Crusaders on a whole. You know, if 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 you're sitting there as All Black coach and you're watching the, the your leading Super Rugby team give away 15 penalties and and, and concede two yellow cards, you know that's that's concerning uh, because you know you're not you're not always going to survive that. You know, two yellow cards is is pretty horrific um, to to be down you know one man for 20 minutes in a match and and be consistently backpedalled and. You know, there's not many teams in world rugby that can survive, you know, that many line-out drives, just constant pressure on your own line. So uh, the Crusaders did it, but it's not something that they've been wanting to do every week. And, you know, if All Blacks coach Ian Foster sitting there, he's certainly going to want to see drastic improvements in that, on that front. Yeah, it, it, sorry, Christy, you were just rolling off that one. Um, interesting comments from Highlanders coach Tony Brown in the wake of that, that game at the, the post-match media press conference saying um, that rugby was in a sad res- a sad place because of um, teams playing or, or in, uh, infringing like the Crusaders did in that game. I think it was about a 15-8 penalty count um, against the Crusaders there, um, clearly deserving of a lot of them. Um, Liam, I'll come to you first on this one. Uh, what did you make of those comments? And I guess are the Crusaders a cynical team or have you just got to tip your hat to them and say, look, 
they're going to play that way, and if they can do it and then back their defence, you know, you've got to say fair play. Yeah, I think there's a few strands to this. I think uh, it was not the only reason the Islanders lost. Uh, you know, they blew a number of chances. There were a couple of uh, wayward crossfield kicks in the 22. They they didn't vary their line-out, which also went to the pack after they replaced their hookers. So there were other reasons that the Islanders lost, but were the Crusaders cynical? Yes, they were. Uh, they, they were infringing repeatedly. Uh, they were infringing on their line. And I guess, you know, it's up to the referee to uh, to put a line in the sand early in a match like that and say that these sort of things I'm not going to tolerate. So um, I think there's an element in sport in general across different codes. You know, you look back at the Australian cricket team, they used to get decisions from umpires. And I think there's an element of that with the Crusaders that, you know, the best teams, they, they know how to manage referees. They tend to get favourable decisions. Um, so, you know, all teams will push the referee to their limit and they will try and get away with everything they can. You know, rugby's not a black and white game. You know, the breakdown's ambiguous. It's open to interpretation. So you're going to push those interpretations and see what you can get away with. And the Crusaders stepped over the line numerous times and, you know, it, it worked in their, it ultimately worked in their favour. So, um, you know, I think there's some truth to what Tony Brown's saying for sure that, you know, um, Elements of rugby are in a bit of a sad state, and there, and there does need to be a real uh, crackdown on certain areas. Um, but you get away with what you can, so it's it's uh, up to the referees to stamp out that sort of behaviour. Christy, your thoughts? Well, well, we've seen it for years. Your blacks get away with it. It's no surprise. <laughs> it's no surprise that the Crusaders that make up half the, the side for the All Blacks are going to also push the ledger. Uh, the, the Crusaders have been at times willing to give away three points, um, you know, give away a penalty if they can, if it's going to save them, the opposition from scoring. Uh, Jay Moody's done it time and time again. We saw, oh, the most infamous one that stands out for me was when he took out, I think it was currently Bill, across the ditch when the Waratahs raced out to a massive lead and there was this huge off-the-ball shot that was somehow missed by everyone. Uh, he should have definitely been at least yellow card and probably even red card and for it and somehow gets away with it. Uh, as, as, as Lane says, if you're good enough to, to get away with it, you're always going to. And, and unfortunately, we, we saw in the, in the Reds-Rebels game on the weekend, Ben Wade just blow the whistle off the game. We don't want the TMO looking at every single thing, particularly if there isn't a player that's severely injured. So, you know... I think, yeah, Tony Brown, fair enough. He was on a fly half that loved to see the game played, to, to see backs dominate, to see scores, uh, scores from all over the field. So he's always going to come out and have that position. I will just say one thing I think the referees did do well in the opening round. It seems to be a real policy that, particularly around the ruck, that players have to show clear and obvious evidence that they're onside. So a lot of the penalties have been for offside, and I think you know that's something that we can all get behind, that you know you want to police the space in the game and give attacks the best possible chance. So I'm all for referees penalising the offside line and, and really enforcing that. Absolutely. Before we leave New Zealand, um, a guy caught my eye, and I'm sure plenty of other people's as well, over the weekend, uh, Asafo Almua, um Liam bursts onto the scene really as a, as a young fella there back a few years ago. Uh, I think the under under twenties tournament about twenty seventeen scored a bucket load of tries, ran over umpteen defenders from about five or six different countries, and uh, pretty much went viral there 
for a period. Um, he toured as an All Blacks um, tourist, I guess, not didn't actually get a start. Um, and then it's kind of gone off the boil a little bit the last couple of years. I know clearly Dane Coles is there um, at the Hurricanes. Ricky Riccatelli is another one, two very good hookers. Um, are we about to see, or was that the start of, you know, Asafa Amua really uh, starting to dominate New Zealand rugby? Yeah, I think you're right, Sam. It's, um, you sort of charted his progress there, and I guess he's uh, symptomatic of, uh, I guess, a young island boy coming into professional rugby very early and, uh, you know, taking time to come to grips with everything that's involved in, in being a professional. You know, he had struggles with um, eating well and, and training habits and those sorts of things. And, you know, he was, as you mentioned, elevated to such um, a lofty expectations very early on, having gone away on that tour as an apprentice. And, yeah, has come back to really start from the ground up. And and he is a phenomenal athlete. He's, his low centre of gravity, his power, um, his strength. You know, there's no other player, no other hooker like him in, in world rugby. Um, and he's had to bide his time, and, and you know he's making the most of those opportunities now. And um, you know it is really now now is his time because Dane Coles is is in the final year of his contract with the, the Crusade at the Hurricanes, sorry, and and you know probably not going to continue. So um, you know he'll be looking for a big year, but um, was going to get chances. And um, you know uh, from an All Blacks perspective as well, you know what a dynamic sort of guy to have waiting in the wings, somebody that you could potentially inject off the bench for the final 20 minutes against tiring defences and, and just let him run, run wild. He's had some real struggles with his line-out throwing. It's been a, a big problem of, of his. So, you know, those core skills are really important for hookers, but I think he's worked really hard on that and seems to be improving. So, you know, if he can put that full package together, it's going to be, you know, impressive to watch, isn't it? Yeah, certainly one player to really keep a close eye on. Uh, over in New Zealand this year. Christy, um, let's jump back to Australia. Uh, two weeks into Super Rugby AU. Um, have you seen the standard of the competition? Clearly, um, we've got the the Brumbies and the Reds who, who probably look to be a cut above and, and have depth coming off their bench. I think we, we'll get to the Waratahs problems in a second, but um, they uh, they look just that little bit stronger and certainly the Brumbies' um, performance last week and, and even over in Perth, um, was uh, was really uh, when you talk about hitting the ground running, that was um, that was pretty special on both fronts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think first up, it was interesting, and it always is watching a New Zealand game into an Australian game, and, and, and looking at that Crusaders Highlanders match. It's under the roof. So, you know, if you're ever to be able to put together a, a fast-paced, entertaining game, it has to be in Dunedin, and we saw that. But but you, you keep coming back to things that Dave Rennie spoke about last year, and that was. Uh, intensity, uh, ruck speed, um, clearing the ruck, those sorts of things have been a little bit slow and off the pace. We saw a bit of drop ball from the Crusaders. I know that that was spoken a little bit about in, in commentary across the ditch um, on Friday night. But, but on the whole, you, you've got to say that the skills, once again, are, are, are more advanced in New Zealand and particularly the intensity right across the field. You, you look at Australian rugby, though, and, and, and yes, the depth is the big issue because... The Reds and the Brumbies have, have bucket loads of it. I think the force will show in time that they've got more uh, more depth than they've ever had. Um, but the Waratahs and, and the Rebels, to an extent, don't nearly have that. Um, the, the, the Rebels pushed the Reds, um, and they did that through just accumulating points. I, I thought, you know, 
if this is if this is a sign of things to come for the Rebels, well, this is a, they're in a dark place. If all they're going to do is, is go for three points, I, I'm not even sure if they were inside the Reds' 22 in the entire game there for 80 minutes. They they really just anywhere near. They got a penalty. Matt Moore, Reece Hodge step up. Um, maybe we'll find a goal kicker out of out of them though, because Australian rugby needs a, a goal kicker that's going to play for the Wallabies. Whether or not Will Harrison will play in the next year for the Wallabies, we'll wait and see. But but, but even then, you know, we've seen Matty Tamour miss a goal at the end. Reese Hodge once again one from two, striking one from fifty out, but then missing the, the easier one. These are sorts of issues that. Australian rugby needs to fix. Um, but the big, big highlights, the positives have been, there's actually quite a few centres developing in Australian rugby. Lenny Ikatia certainly is the, the, the recent guy on the, the tips of people's tongues. The, the question being, do you, do you start to think, is this guy a 13, is Hunter Bice Arming a 12 or a Thor at 13? Or where does Geordie Bataille come into this? Because... Bataille probably skill-wise has it all but can't really pass at the moment and that's been shown up for years. Do the Reds start to consider him at full-back and have the long-term interests of Australian rugby and the Wallabies at the front of their minds? So I think these are questions that Scotty Johnson, the director of Australian rugby, has to get on top of. What's in the best interest of Australian rugby? Well, it's certainly the Wallabies. How do you get the Wallabies to start to win? And that's to have guys playing in the positions where they're going to be looked at um, in going into the Wallabies because we saw Reese Hodge play 12 inside centre for the Rebels. Is he considered a 12 or a 13 for the Wallabies? We saw him play 15 and 10 in the Tri-Nations and yet he's now playing in, a, in, in another position. They're, they're the big questions that I have early on in the season. Yeah, certainly seems to be a bit of a disconnect there, particularly around Reese Hodge, um, given uh, that start in the game, uh, that win in Bledisloe 2 up there in Brisbane. Uh, sorry, Bledisloe 4 last year in Brisbane. There's four of them, wasn't he? It's hard to keep up there for a few weeks. Um, Liam, let's talk about uh, what your thoughts have been of, of Super Rugby AU over the first two weeks. Um, do you agree uh, on that front with Christy? Uh, any one player that um, you've thought has really hit the ground running in 2021? Yeah, uh, I watched that Reds-Rebels um, Reds game and, uh, you know, it was, it was very competitive and, and the Rebels probably, uh, yeah, should have snuck it over death with Matty Tamoa missing the outbreaks. Um, interesting facial here from Dave Vessels too, you know. Uh, not sure what's what's quite going on here, Mexican, Mexican cartel or... Um, Pretty special, something, yep. Something special. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, you two rounds in as opposed to one over here, so probably, you know, a bit of a, a step forward in there in terms of continuity. You know, the Crusaders, as uh, Christy mentioned, were, were, were a bit scrappy in that second half, and I think the New Zealand teams will, will certainly get better from here. Um, the Brumbies are, you know, clearly well out in front, um, setting the pace, and, and, and of course, you know, building on what they did last year as well. So, um, yeah, and uh, Rob, Rob Penny, you know, a fair bit of uh, pressure mounting up there, and it was interesting to see him come out midweek and basically say, you know, well, if you, if you want to sack me, do it. Um, you know, uh, so he's obviously feeling the heat and with a lot of rookies running around the Tars, and it's a pretty difficult place when you get, get there with for any sort of coach and, you know, you're struggling to find a way out. So... Um, yes, from a, a Kiwi's perspective, going to be interesting to, to, to watch a, a New Zealand coach try and dig himself out of a, what's a, a big hole, isn't it? Christy, um, fair bit of talk clearly around the Waratahs 
uh, around Australian rugby circles this week. Um, first up against the Reds, they made a, a pretty you know fine start there with with Jake Gordon scoring early, but then for much of it it was downhill from there. But I don't think anyone thought the scale of the victory, sorry, the scale of the defeat um, that they suffered to the Brumbies would follow the next week. Um, how far back do you trace these problems? We know about the the player exodus. Uh, is that a fault of list management? Is it um, the uh, the departures of Andrew Hoare and Daryl Gibson around the same time? Rob Penny, as, as Liam Napier mentioned, there having to come in and and virtually um, you know get a team together last year in in about three or four months' time, and and then having been hit by COVID, we saw Chris Whittaker blaming COVID for even more departures and the the club's financial pressures. Um, is this a combination of all those factors or are you pointing the finger squarely at a couple of people in the, in this absolute um, hell show for uh, for the Waratahs? Yeah, I, look, the, the play drain started before you lose the likes of Bernard Foley and Nick Phipps in 2019. The play drain starts when you leave lose guys like Mitch Chapman and Steve Wells and Dave Dennis. You know, Dave Dennis, the heart and soul of the Waratahs, he ends up playing in a couple of finals for Exeter. Now these guys aren't commanding, you know, five, six hundred thousand dollars. These guys are middle tier sorts of players that have played a few internationals. And then you look at guys like Michael Wells. In twenty eighteen, he's New South Wales Waratahs forward of the year, yet yet the Waratahs weren't even prepared to offer him more than a base contract. So, so, so he, he was doubling up by playing a little bit of sevens to earn a bit more cash on the side, but they weren't prepared to offer him any more than that, even though he's a guy now in his mid-20s, someone that he's, no, he's got years of super under experience under his belts. So if they're not prepared to uh, offer contracts to these guys and they're going to rely on the junior Wallabies who are 19 and 20 years old who have hardly played any rugby against adults, against men, what's that say about... Yes, list management. What's it say about talent identification? And you look at the guys like, obviously, 2019, at the end of it, is, well, at the start of it, when Andrew Hall offers Daryl Gibson a, a renewed contract off the back of a, a, an OK season where they made the final, the semi-final in 2018, a year earlier, after missing out the previous two years. Yeah, you know, the Super Rugby system was so flawed in 2018 that you only had to win half your games to make it through to the finals. And then they had an OK performance against the Highlanders to get into a semi-final. The Waratahs cheered and thought it was a reasonable year. It really wasn't. You know, winning half your games and only winning a handful of games in front of your fans in Sydney is not good enough. So, yes, you can trace it there. You can trace Andrew Hall walking out on the, on the club later that year. Um, off the back of having to find a new coach, Simon Cron disappearing to, to, to Japan because he was told he's not going to be head coach the next year and possibly not ever. So, yes, 2019 is probably the catalyst and it brings you to the point where, wow, this is a side that is seriously on the cliff dive now. But it's before that where you go Tim Ratt, Andrew Cleverly, who's the talent identification manager for two and a half years, what on earth are they doing? Now, I've been told by a few players that Tim Rapp had great talent ID, but he wasn't able to sign anyone because Andrew Hall wasn't opening up the purse. For years, they've been operating well below the salary cap. But when you're, when you're passing up guys like Will Miller, um, perhaps Uri Simone, um, Angus Taubau's the biggest and clearest obvious one, and he gets let go at the end of 2017, 
you're not good enough, Angus. And a year later, you're playing for the All Blacks. So there was something seriously wrong with those that were putting together the list. Three of them have gone, Hall, Gibson and Rapp. But there has to be some accountability from the board. Roger Davis is still there. There's a new CEO and a relatively new coach in Rob Penny. They're picking up the scraps. Whether or not Penny is allowed some time, I've been told by players that they think it's a three- to four-year rebuilding process. Well, that's a long time and a lot of pain, and that is a lot of pain for Australian rugby if the biggest state in Australia can hardly buy a win. Liam, how much do you think uh, New Zealand rugby administrators are, are looking on from your side of the Tasman saying, well, if the Waratahs are in this much of a hole, this is meant to be Australian rugby's biggest market, um, biggest player resource region, um, and they've just been beaten by uh, 51 um, and with no real signs of, of climbing out of that hole. As Christy mentioned, there could be a three- or a four-year turnaround, um, a rebuild, if you like. How much are they looking at this situation and thinking, well, we might just pull back on a, on a Trans-Tasman you know, fully unified comp for, for 2022, if not next year, then beyond? Yeah, I don't know if... I think the thing with New Zealand is they don't actually have that many options available to them. You know, um, you know, being in such an isolated part of the world, um, they can't afford to play amongst just themselves um, from, from a financial perspective. Um, so I think... I think next year you will see, you know, COVID permitting that trans Tasman comp get off the ground with the introduction of, of Moana Pacifica and a Fijian side, provided that they can raise the necessary capital. I think it's, you know, in excess of $10 million each just to get off the ground. Um, but, you know, any given the strength of Super Rugby Aotearoa and the competitiveness every week, you don't want to dilute that. So uh, any anything that you're bringing into that, you want um, you want competition. You want intensity. Uh, you don't want blowouts. You know that was one of the biggest problems when they expanded Super Rugby and brought in the Sunwolves and the Kings. You know, and uh, the integrity of the competition suffered because there were just too many weak teams and too many blowouts, and it was too convoluted and it just turned and alienated a whole bunch of fans that they're only just now starting to bring back. So. Whatever whatever happens next year, um, New Zealand and Australian rugby need to ensure that uh, every team is competitive. That there are rivalries, and that that's what's going to build interest. And if you know, uh, if the Brumbies are smacking the Waratahs by fifty one points, imagine what the Crusaders and Blues would do to them. Christy, um, some talk on social media here in Australia this week around the fact that. The Waratahs didn't actually value the NRC at all. Um, they didn't invest in it as they should have. Uh, sorry, New South Wales rugby. Um, do you buy that criticism? Is it fair? Um, and uh, where do you see uh, the NRC's place uh, in Australian rugby going forward, providing that third tier, which essentially it was to, to avoid situations like this for the professional franchises? Yeah, I actually don't buy it, and I don't buy it for a few reasons. I think it's just a, it's a cheap excuse without actually putting some accountability at those that were there to do a job, i.e. list management and talent identification. The Waratahs have, have always had good players coming through. Um, but it, it, it's, it's eerily similar to what happened with the Queensland Reds post Ewan McKenzie, where a coach there had been there already, was a, you know, becomes the heir apparent, uh, Richard Graham takes over and slowly players don't want to play for him 
the, the best players leave. Maybe a couple of them want to go overseas. Yet there hasn't actually been a um, uh, how do we how do we over time introduce the Jake McIntyres to give him a bit of time behind Quade Cooper rather than five minutes. How do we give him fifteen minutes? Those sorts of things meant that. That, that plays when they were thrust into it weren't good enough. And the, and the clear, and the, you know, you just have to look at Will Harrison, Mac Mason to what happened with Bernard Foley, where Foley plays pretty much, the, you know, for five years straight wearing the 10 jersey, no one else gets another go. Um, the, the Reds had three or four abysmal years and, 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 and Brad Thorne clearly said, came out and said, we're going to back the youth. And he was allowed to some time, some patience from the, the Queensland board. But how, how did the Waratahs come into this situation and not look what's happened um, just north of them, just look up to Queensland and go, it, it's so plainly obvious where the shortcomings have come from um, that the NRC is it's a simple cop-out and it's a cop-out that those I don't think truly understand how much money was being invested in that, the sides that were made up. We've got good enough competitions here in Brisbane and Sydney particularly uh, an emerging competition in, in Perth that you, you don't need to invent and construct an NRC competition which guys like Tamiela Tupo, yes, they've come through it and they've played a couple of games in it, but they would have, in reality, they were already playing for the Reds at the time and all they needed was two or three years of rugby behind them. We, we've got to get to the point where we're not just throwing 19, 20-year-olds in there. There's a reason why Australian rugby, if you look at the top 10 super um, fastest players to 100 caps, they're pretty much all Australian because they all get tossed in there as 18, 19-year-olds and expected to, to beat sides in New Zealand, which have got a lot of players in their, in their mid to late 20s, a couple of early 30s, and only the very, very best get given cracks when they're 20 years old. I guess the other thing to consider here, Liam, even from a, a New Zealand perspective, as well as that we've got, you know, um, Japan about to relaunch their, their top league in a new format next year. We all know the money and the impact that the Rugby World Cup has had up there. Uh, Major League Rugby have come down and when Christy refers to the shoot shield there, they picked off, you know, two or three players from, from Gordon who took out the shoot shield last year. There's plenty of options for players and, and more directly, there are options for those lower tier players that have previously propped up teams like the, the Waratahs and the Reds and the Brumbies that have been quality Quality players, perhaps not the stars, but provide that real backbone when perhaps injuries and, and other things uh, occur within a club. Yeah, that's right. Even in a, a COVID landscape, you know, retaining your talent at all levels, you know, the, the middle, the top tier is incredibly difficult. Uh, you only have to look at this season in Japan and you've got TJ Pirinara, Bowden Barrett, uh, Brody Metallic, Ben Smith, Aaron Cruden, you know, um, Kieran Reid, some of those guys have moved on from the All Blacks, but you know they're still quality players. And uh, then you you bring that back and look at the Hurricanes, and they they uh, they're running around with rookie halfbacks uh, and Luke Campbell and um, Jonathan Tamatine, and you know that has a real impact on on, on your team, and uh, that challenges your depth. And you know halfback is such an influential position. TJ Pitanara. You know, is the you know a real heart and soul of the Hurricanes franchise, and you just you can't replace the guy. The, the Hurricanes won the title, uh, their, their first Nani title with um, Pitanara and Barrett. Barrett moved to the Blues, um, and now now they're both in Japan. So, and you mentioned the Emma um, Major League Rugby, and you know that's what's coming for the next tier of players. And 
you know, guys that, that would have, you know, potentially come through and, and filled some of those gaps are taking opportunities offshore. If they're, if they're not going to Europe or they're not going to Japan, then they have another option. So, yeah, it's incredibly difficult in and in a challenging financial landscape. There's not a lot of money to throw around um, to retain these players, to give them, um, you know, wage increases. So, you know, it's not an easy job to retain talent and, and you're starting to see some of those flow-on effects um, throughout different teams and, and positions in New Zealand as well, for sure. Yeah, suddenly Falao Whakatawa, a very hot property across the ditch there with Aaron Smith re-signing with the Highlanders through 2023. Um, Boys, before we wrap up, let's look at a, a Trans-Tasman crossover series that is on the books for this year, um, starting the week after uh, the finals wrap-up and the respective uh, domestic competitions. Um, Liam, obviously, uh, it's a tricky one given you're in lockdown now, and, and certainly we've had our fair share of those over here um, in Australia as well, with, uh, with Victoria thrust into another one there midway through the Australian Open. Um, we've already heard reports that... Um, the uh, CEOs of the five provinces over there, are, sorry, five franchises are, are already preparing um, for the probability, well, not maybe the probability, but um, the chance that uh, a third round of Aotearoa fixtures will be played. Um, if you were to give it, uh, I guess, a percentage breakdown of whether this, this competition will go ahead, um, could you do it? And, and where do things sit over there, I guess, at the moment? Yeah, I guess uh, from a percentage perspective, I would say... 85% chance that it does not go ahead. You know, there's so many different um, strands and things that would have to come to fruition for this to get off the ground. Uh, one of the, the major problems um, that New Zealand teams face is that the managed isolation, isolation facilities are pretty much booked up until June. So, and then you're looking at asking All Blacks to quarantine twice in a year so if they have to go to Australia you know, say, say you had a hub in Australia where all the teams came over and played the Trans-Tasman competition because there's, as it stands, there's no free travel between Australia and New Zealand. Anytime you come to New Zealand, you've got a quarantine for two weeks. So my understanding is, is um, All Blacks won't quarantine twice in a year. So they will do it for the internationals, but they're very unlikely to do it for a Trans-Tasman competition. Um, and... Yeah, so that's one, one major problem. Um, I think there's a real appetite uh, to see the, the trans-asthma comp get off the ground at some point, you know. Um, but, you know, if you have to go to a third round of Super Rugby Aotearoa, it does become a bit same-same, a bit stale, and I think interest will wane, and I think that would be the same over there, you know, watching the same teams go around, the same rivalries, there's only so many different storylines and, and subplots, so... Uh, I think, you know, there is still hope and I think that's the preference for that Trans-Hesman comp to get off the ground. But, um, you know, there's just outbreaks coming and, and you know, the, what the Blues are dealing with at the moment, they can't return to Auckland because they can't train here. So they've moved to the Waikato and, and been based in Cambridge for the week, even on their bye week, so they can, can continue to train together. So all these little flare-ups and, and little outbreaks just make it difficult and you're really hanging on for vaccinations to, um, to create that trans-tasm, much touted trans-tasm bubble that just looks like a bit of a, a distant dream until maybe, you know, the mid or back end of the year. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty difficult, I think, to get that off the ground. It seems like, Christy, the trans-tasman bubble was mentioned about a fortnight after we were first locked down here in Australia, and I'm sure it was the same over there in New Zealand. It's It's been a long time coming, and as Liam says, it could be a, 
a ways off yet. Um, my mail out of Rugby Australia is that they're prepared to sit tight for a little while yet. Uh, they don't want to make on any moves um, before they get some clarity around this. I guess there'll have to become a point where a decision would have to be made and, you know, certainly midway through that, that final round, or sorry, that second block of, of fixtures you would think would, would have to be about the cutoff point. Um, how do you see it playing out and, and how important, I guess, is it that Australian rugby does get these fixtures, these crossover fixtures, to go ahead this year, certainly to, to see where the Brumbies are at and, and where the rest of the competition is at against these New Zealand teams, fingers crossed, in terms of a, a fully-fledged 12-team uh, competition, as, as Liam mentioned earlier, for next year? Yeah, I think it's paramount. I think Australian rugby desperately needs it. New Zealand would probably, rugby would probably welcome it because they might be able to have a little bit of respite for a couple of players themselves. But, but it's important for the Reds and the Brumbies because it's it's pretty easy to think that you're world beaters when you're beating the Waratahs. But let's be honest, anyone should be playing and beating the Waratahs at the moment. If if it doesn't get off the ground, you like to you think and 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 I. Uh, the idea of sitting tight, I think, is a good one for the for the time being. But if it doesn't get off the ground, you like to think that things like State of Origin and a Barbarian side can get brought together where they might be able to play two or three fixtures against each other. Um, I think that would be important. I think it would also allow perhaps a few combinations to be tried as well. Um, so they've got to be thinking on their feet. The other the other thing I you, you, you can't rule out, but. Why doesn't the Brumbies, if Australian rugby players are prepared to, to suck it up and take one on the chin, Dan McKellar wants to prove himself against New Zealand opposition. If it is indeed the Brumbies that win Super Rugby AU, why not they go to their New Zealand counterparts and go, we'll come over, we'll, let's play the best of two or three series yep. and we'll, we'll, we'll play on your turf. I, I think that a little bit of innovation um, and fluidity is, is really important here. And it's, and it's important for the, the long-term interest of Australian rugby, but also the short-term interest leading into 2023 World Cup because there's a, a lot of good players at that Brumbies and Red side. Whoever does take it out, maybe both those two teams can go over and play the two semi the, the two finalists in, in Super Rugby Aotearoa. Um, that would be exciting to watch and it would just be a, a, great, um, a, a great advertisement of, of trans-Tasman rugby that you can actually do things to. Innovation, yeah, well put, Christy. I think that's something that they proved that they could do last year and and certainly um, Rugby Australia and New Zealand rugby and, and Argentina, um, not so much Saru from South Africa, but we've, uh, we've already been down that road. Um, Liam, where do you think the relationship is now between NZR and, and Rugby Australia? We saw the, uh, the picture of Mark Robertson and... And then interim CEO Rob Clark walking hand in hand on the, the beach at Manly, I think it was, Christy. Um, is it, is it, has that been fully repaired, do you think? And um, can the two organisations work together for a, for a better future down uh, in this corner of the world? Yeah, I think it's vastly improved from you know, uh, the middle of last year when there was the big fallout following the expressions of interest process from New Zealand rugby, which you know rightly put a few Australian noses out of joint with the way that it was handled, the sort of blunt and, um, you know, com um, way that was conveyed. Um, so I think, yeah, they've, they've, they've patched their relationship up. Uh, um, you know, they need each other, don't they, at the end of the day? Uh, you know, we're both in the same part of the world and uh, a rich history between the, the All Blacks and the Wallabies and that flows down to, to Super Rugby as well. And, and there's this competition on the horizon next year that they're, they're both going to need to buy into and, 
and work together on and in a COVID climate everything's that much more difficult to to bring to fruition as well so I think they, they, there's a realisation that they need each other as as much as they need to look after their own backyards and there needs to be a bit of give and take um, but you know it's New Zealand and Australia there's always going to be that rivalry there and um, you know even in the boardroom I think there's an element of, of wanting to get one up on each other and and you know take what advantages you can so um, yeah I think they're, they're on a good footing but um, there's always going to be you know a bit of, bit of back and forth isn't there and I don't think you know that keeps us employed doesn't it? For sure a bit of uh, controversy and a few words going both ways never hurts us in the media game alright boys um, before we finish up this week a couple of uh, big calls for the weekend ahead. Christy, we can't go past the Waratahs on Friday night. Um, first home game against the Force. Coming off, let's face it, probably the, their worst result. I put it worse than that Crusaders 96-19 drubbing from all those years ago, purely because of the, the stretch on the playing group. Um, do they get a miracle bounce-back win on Friday against the Force? And if not, um, do we have a new coach in charge of the Waratahs for round four? Well, I don't think I don't think the the Tars would do it. I think the Force will register their first Super Rugby win since 2017, and good luck to them. As I said earlier, I think they've actually got some good depth in there. I like what they're doing. Um, uh, they they should get the job done. Obviously, they had the buy in round two. That probably does hurt them a little bit because the continuity. I'm sure they would have liked to have played another game, but. Um, they're playing, the Waratahs are playing at Bank West. It hasn't been a particularly happy hunting ground, not only for the for the Waratahs, but also at the Wallabies, of course, a draw there last year. Um, but, but, you know, they, they might struggle to attract more than six, 7,000 fans. We talk about one of the last ever attendances uh, up in, against the Blues, I think, to start off last year uh, in Super Rugby before it was curtailed because of COVID. But... You know, in Sydney, in Parramatta, could you have a crowd that is less than what we saw up in, in Newcastle? I think there's a strong possibility. And, and that is a dreadful look for Australian rugby. It's an average look for their new broadcasters. They'll be praying that, that the Waratahs can win. I'm not sure if they can. They just don't have enough depth. Their type five is, is, is small. Um, and unfortunately, they're, they're, they're a couple of toilers in the second rowers when they need a couple of big boppers there. And, and you know, young halves pairing, there's zero confidence right throughout Australia and uh, throughout the Waratahs. And you, and you look at someone like Jack Maddox and he turned around when Lenny Ikatao covered past him last week and it was just a look of frustration and despair and, and thinking, geez, this is going to be a long year, isn't it? Certainly looking that way. Uh, Liam, the Chiefs had the, the round one bye over there. We know they were... They were 0-8 last year, albeit a, a few narrow results in there. Just didn't have luck go their way. Um, Warren Gatlin is now back watching on the Six Nations. Um, who have had their own tr- dramas up there with COVID and uh, some wayward French individuals. Uh, back to the Chiefs. Um, will they get that elusive win this weekend? And, and do you think they're, they're set for a, for a better season that can potentially challenge the, the likes and the, of the Blues and the, the Crusaders? Surely they have a better year than last year that they are. Look, it's a, it's a fascinating dynamic with an, an interim head coach and, and Clayton McMillan coming on board with, uh, as you say, Warren Gatlin up north with the Lions duties and, and who knows what happens with that tour. But uh, Clayton's going to revert to an assistant role next year and, and Gatlin's going to come back in over the top. But, uh, you know, who knows if, if the Chiefs um, have a storm over the year, that's, that could be a pretty uh, awkward dynamic there. So, uh, for 
from what I've heard from uh, various players, uh, I've been impressed with Clayton. He's, he's uh, very direct. Uh, he, he's hands-on. He's done a great job with Bay of Plenty and, and New Zealand Māori. Um, so he's proven himself in, in those departments. And, you know, it's a real opportunity for him to, to come in and, and show that he's, he's ready for, for Super Rugby. Uh, the Chiefs, yeah, they got to sit out round one and, and they've been fairly open about the fact that they've got a chip on their shoulder this year and, and they would have watched what the Highlanders did in round one. And, and um, you know, it's a bit of a, a benefit being able to, to pop for another week. You know, they might be a bit rusty, but, you know, there's some quality individuals there and Sam Kane and Anton Leonard Brown and, um, you know, Damien McKenzie's going to be starting at fullback. Um, so, yeah, really interesting to see what happens in Hamilton and, and uh, the other match, the Crusaders, Hurricanes, uh, you know, massive test for the Hurricanes type five and with the Crusaders going back home. The, the, the Hurricanes were the only team to beat the Crusaders last year in Christchurch, snapping um, their ridiculous one string. I think it was the first loss in Christchurch since 2016. So, um, yeah, big task for the Hurricanes in Christchurch as well. Yes, uh, four good games coming in and certainly no shortage of storylines. I think over this side uh, we'll be watching Friday night's game uh, on the box with intrigue given the, the ramifications of what might happen. Uh, boys, thanks very much for, for making the time this week. It's been a pleasure having you both on. Uh, Liam, all the best with uh, lockdown over there. Halfway through, mate, or where, where are we at? Yeah, what are we, Wednesday, so four days to go. All, all things going well. Well, uh, no more... Uh cases in the community or, or, or um, you know, various individuals flouting lockdown rules. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Um, but, no, you can't complain on a global scale. We've been um, fairly lucky, haven't we, all, all things considered. Absolutely. Same over here. Christy, uh, enjoy the rugby this weekend, mate, and the cricket this afternoon. Uh, we know you've got a lot on your plate, so thanks for making the time. <laughs>